Welcome, and thanks for checking out the Living Word Family Church Sermon Podcast. Before we get to the message, we'd like to invite you to check out Living Word Family Church if you don't already have a church home. For more information, you can check out our website at livingwordfamily.org. So we have, meanwhile, we're in 2 Corinthians today. We spent most of the first Sunday in this book looking at, uh, well, at least focusing on the truth that all the promises of God are yes and amen in Christ Jesus. Please get that message if you missed it from uh, two weeks ago. Last week, we talked about the new creation, how we are living epistles, how we are the fifth gospel, as the great evangelist Gypsy Smith said. And today, we continue on into chapter 6. And uh, after the opening verses, which we ended with last week, we'll begin in verse 3 today. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. And we'll read through verse 10. We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. But in all things we commend ourselves as ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs, in distresses, in stripes, in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings, by purity, by knowledge, by long sufferings, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers, yet true, as unknown, yet well-known, as dying, and behold, we live, as chastened, and yet not killed, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing, as poor, yet making many rich, as having nothing, yet possessing all things. Wow, I think he covered it, didn't he? He's saying this is what our ministry is about. We are, we are marching forward. We are not going to turn to the right or to the left. We are doing what we're doing by the guidance of God, by the power of God, and it doesn't matter what we endure. If we're suffering, God is there to protect us and pull us through it. You might heard rumors that we're dead, but guess what? We're still alive. There have been times when we've had everything. There have been times when we'd have nothing, and God continues to supply everything we need to keep doing what we're doing, and we're doing it for the glory of God and for your benefit. This is our testimony for our ministry. He's, he, he, and he'll come back to this. He already, he's already started to do this. There's a, there's a lot of things in this letter where he's defending his apostleship. And one of the main things he keeps driving home is, I'm not doing this to get anything from you. Back in 1 Corinthians, you remember, he, he kind of jabbed him a little bit. He says, you know, I was with you all that time, year and a half, pouring myself into you, and I never took one thing from you. If you look back, you really should have been paying me, but I wasn't going to be the one to suggest it while I was there. So I just made tents for a living, and I poured myself into you for free so that you couldn't accuse me of anything. So he's, I'm not selfish. I'm doing this because God has called me to do it. I'm doing it for your, your benefit and for the glory of God. Then, continuing on in verse 11, he says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. Now, in return for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. So, he's acknowledging maybe they are complaining that this, this, uh, this life isn't everything it could be. And uh, he's saying, this isn't me holding you back. It's not God holding you back. You know what's holding you back is you're, you're double-minded. You, still, you have an affection for God, and you have a desire for this thing to be bigger and better in your life, but you also still have affections for other things, and that is what's holding you back. And then he goes on to this passage that you're very familiar with. In verse 14, he says, Do not be unequally yoked with, together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? 
Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be, as a, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Now, this is heavy. And uh, when we talk about being unequally yoked, what's the thing we usually apply it to? Marriage. Marriage. Uh, And certainly we should apply that principle to marriage if we should apply it anywhere. The history of Christianity and Judaism before it is filled with examples of people enduring great hardship, tribulation, and trials, and not abandoning their faith. And it's also full of examples of people abandoning their faith because of bad relationships, isn't it? We see this happening again and again. Uh, If if we're going to talk about a Bible verse to back up that principle, though, a better one would be, how can two walk together except they be agreed? Right? Uh, We talked about this, I think, fairly recently, where the the Bible tells us, he who findeth a wife findeth a good thing. You know, we live in a day and age where uh, many people, they feel incomplete and so they are, they are dedicating a great deal of their resources and time. There are, there are billions of dollars worth of websites out there dedicated to helping people find a mate. They're searching for a mate. So we say, I searched, I searched, I searched. I finally found the right one. But that word findeth, really, uh, that word that's translated find, is better translated probably encounters, meaning you're on a direction. You're not out there looking for a wife. You're out there pursuing the will of God. You're going one direction, and on the way, there's your wife. There's your spouse going the same direction. You encounter somebody who's already on the same mission, right? Uh, That's a blessing right there. If uh, you are a believer and you are committed, you're bound to the will of God, believe me, you are much, much better off single than married to someone who is not similarly committed. There's a whole sermon right there. There's a series in that, but that's not where we're going this morning. He's talking, though. He's not talking about marriage in this verse, I'm not saying it, include, it doesn't include marriage, it does, but he's talking about relationships in general. He's talking about business agreements. He's talking about choices. He's talking about priorities. He is not saying we can't be friends with unbelievers. That would be counterproductive to the whole Great Commission. He is saying don't become bound to them and their pursuits. I had a friend in high school and college who was a great guy, fun to be around, do anything for you, born leader, really. And uh, just most people really liked him. And he became a Christian, and he did okay. Uh, But really, he could never get over this strong and innate desire just to be loved by everybody. As a result of that, what I saw him do again and again was to abdicate his leadership role in certain relationships and friendships. We worked, in addition to hanging out a lot, we worked together at a couple different jobs and uh, there, were, there were some guys who were working one of these shifts with us. And they were, they were fun guys. They were interesting, all right. But they were, and I don't want to sound classist uh, or elitist or anything, but th- these guys really weren't, they weren't ambitious. They weren't believers. They were partiers. They were just guys that, you know, I wouldn't mind investing in their life, wouldn't mind trying to, uh, wouldn't mind, didn't mind fellowshipping with them at all. But didn't want to sink down to their level. Do you know what I mean? Do you, do you know what I'm? Do you know what I mean? Does that sound elitist? I mean, there's certain things that we just kind of there's 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 a, there's a line we don't cross, right? And uh, 
these guys really gravitated toward my friend because, like I said, he had a lot of uh, innate leadership qualities. He had an opportunity to really speak into their lives. I believe they would have listened, but instead what he did uh, was simply descend into their level. Just He traded off his influence for popularity. He wasn't willing to risk his popularity in order to share the gospel with them. And these were people, again, who was like, Man, I've got to understand the, 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 the tension that's there because that's, that's a real thing. The gospel's going to offend some people, and it might cost you a friendship. It might cost you a relationship with a family member. But there's some people like this that I would think, well, gosh, if I lose these guys as friends, what have I lost? <laughs> and my conscience is clear as a result. But I think there's a, there's a chance they would have responded to him. But it was kind of a sad thing to see him lower himself to their level. Now, I get it. Jesus lowered himself in one sense. He condescended to become a man. That's what the incarnation is about. God lowering himself by laying aside his glory, his divine nature, and taking on the form of man. But Jesus never lowered himself to the moral level of those he was ministering to. Right? What did he do? He lifted them up. This is what the Holy Spirit does. This is what Jesus does in our life. He, yes, he condescends to become a man, but he enters into our life so what? He can lift us up to his level. Do you know what the Bible calls that? Exalting. Jesus exalts us. Whoa, Scott, that's heresy. I've sung the songs. So you've got it backwards. We exalt thee. We're here to exalt God. He's not here to exalt us. You want to bet? It's not either or. We exalt him in our lives, but he says he will exalt us. That's a super important thing to remember uh, when we get back into 2 Corinthians after the holiday. When we start looking at Paul's thorn, we're going to say some things about what exaltation means and how we should uh, aim to be exalted by God himself. This is what he does. Again, he elevates us. Uh, so the, the word is telling us here, that there really does need to be a separation. Something or some things that identify us and define us as Christians. Now, I understand perfectly that what defines us as Christians is the finished work of God, our placing faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross. That's what secures our salvation. Uh, But when it comes to defining and identifying us, among the unbelievers, there should be something about us that stands out and separates us other than the fact that we said a prayer a number of years ago. And Paul isn't saying you're not saved because you joined yourself to unbelievers. He's saying this is part of the reason you're not experiencing the fullness of gospel truth in your life. It's you because you've adopted these people's affections. You can be in their life you can be friends with them, but when you lower yourself morally to their level and, their, and, and adopt their pursuits, you are not going to feel fulfilled as a believer. The phrase that was popular a number of years ago was sold out. We might say on fire, or as the great theologian Carmen said, radically saved. Remember that? And it can be a struggle because it's easy. It's so easy when you are passionate to stray into religious legalism. But we really can all be led by the Spirit. Plus, guess what? We don't have to overthink it. 
Paul has already identified some of the things that were the issues, the spirit of the age in Corinth. I can take you back. I don't think I gave you this, this scripture. Uh, 1, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And this isn't an exhaustive list, but it gives us uh, some ideas. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. Well, it gives us at least some things that we know Paul's talking about. If, you've, if, if you're embracing these appetites and these desires, you're not yielded completely to God, and this is why you're still living small as Christians. And there should be a separation. In Ephesians, he talks about unwholesome talk or corrupt communication. Let no unwholesome talk proceed out of your mouth. In 1 Timothy, he talks about modest clothing. And of course, all through the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament, there is the consistent condemnation of idol worship. So we know the kind of things he's talking about, right? And the, the, the danger we run in this society is, well... I want to be friends with the world so that I can save them. And then we start saying, well, but it's okay if I talk a certain way. You, this is, you, you, if you're saying I can't do that, that's just a religious attitude. Well, it's not, especially if it's included, if, if there are specific condemnations of these behaviors and these patterns in the New Testament. So anyway, idolatry. That's the one big consistent thing that's, that's uh, universally condemned through the Old and New Testament. And you and I both know, all of us know, that idolatry is a thing. It is a current problem, even here in the West. We generally, although I'm sure it happens, we don't bow down to little statues and burn incense before them. But we do elevate certain things, certain pursuits and appetites to an unholy level compared to our passion for the things of God. Right? This is the language we even use. He's made an idol of this, that, or the other thing. And... What do you think is the number one idol in the United States of America? Hmm? It's money. Better believe it. And Paul is going to give us the cure for that in another chapter or two. But first, he gets back to the issue of the tension that had existed between himself and the Christians there in Corinth. Remember, uh, he's talking about a letter that he had written them. And in chapter 7, he starts off by telling them, Look, I am trustworthy. And as harsh as I was in this previous letter... Uh, I have not been talking about you behind your back in any way that hasn't been complimentary. In fact, what he says is, I've been boasting about you guys. Everywhere I go, I tell him what a blessing you guys are, how much you really do want to serve the Lord, how much you want to go higher and farther. And uh, in chapter 7, he says, I was so overjoyed when Titus came back with this report. He refers again to the letter. I know I sent a letter that made you really sad. Now, Again, there's some question about which letter this is. It could be 1 Corinthians. It could be a letter he wrote between 1 Corinthians and this one called the severe letter. I think you can make, still make a pretty strong case that the letter he's talking about is 1 Corinthians because of how he zeroes in on the man of sin and how hard this was and how divisive this could have been, how offensive it could have been. But we do know that whatever it was, whether it was that letter and that issue or another letter, there was, at least for a while, a faction that rose up against Paul. They didn't like how stern he was in these letters. In fact, they started saying things like, 
oh, yeah, he comes here and he's all nicey-nicey. Then he gets away and writes these letters to us, tell us how bad we are. It's like he's afraid to face us. And Paul's like, no, no, even when I'm stern in your presence, it's because I love you. And when I go out and about, he says, the things I write to you are for you. What I say to other people about you is, these people are people of God. They want to get right. They might have their problems, but I don't know anybody that loves God more. This is a great congregation. Then he sends Titus to kind of see how they're doing, to see how they received the letter. This was a harsh letter. And Titus comes back, and he's bragged to Titus. He says, Titus, you're going to love these people. The Corinthians, they're a phenomenal bunch. They're going to welcome you. You're going to be impressed with their spirituality. And he's kind of rolling the dice. He as much as admits it that, I don't know how how Titus is really going to find these guys, but I don't want to predispose Titus to being critical of them. So I'm going to build up the Corinthians. And he sends Titus, and Titus goes to find out how they have received Paul's letter. And he comes back to Paul. And he says, not only was everything you said about the Corinthians true, it's even better. They received me, they received your letter, and it hurt them. But you know what that hurt did? You know what that sorrow did? It caused them to repent. And so now they're closer to God than, any, than they've ever been. And this is what Paul writes when he writes, godly sorrow leads to repentance. That's where this phrase comes from. He says, I am so overjoyed. I've, I've been i got to be honest with you, Corinthians. It's been a rough road. We've been through so much junk. We've been nearly killed so many times. And he's going to give us a more detailed list of that in a couple chapters. We won't get to it today. Uh, But when we talk about uh, Paul's thorn, we will. He says, it's been tough. And I was energized. I was rejuvenated when Titus came and brought me this report. I am so proud of you guys. And... Turns out my boasting wasn't in vain. Now I can tell you, I've been saying all these good things about you. And it really would have been embarrassing if Titus had come back and said, Paul, I don't know who you're talking about, but that's a completely different church in Corinth. The, the, the people that I experienced, uh, that I, I met in Corinth were a bunch of babies. They're a bunch of petty, angry, hurt individuals who refuse to grow up spiritually. No, he comes back and says, it's even better than you described, Paul. And Paul's saying, thank you that my boasting hasn't been in vain. He's just... Uh, so he just, he compliments them, he gushes, compliments them, he gushes over uh, how, proud he, how proud he is he is of them, how pleased he is with the repentance that's taken place. And then, let me read this, in 2 Corinthians, we, we just referred to this, but let me see, see this in case I left something out. In 2 Corinthians 7, verse uh, 10, For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you, what clearing of yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what vehement desire, what zeal, what vindication. In all things you proved yourselves to be clear in this matter. We also have to be careful how we respond to correction and rebuke. It's never going to be pleasant By its nature, it's, it's going to hurt for a minute. But if we respond correctly, look at what it can produce in our lives. And here, the Corinthians, for all their immaturity and all their problems, they had come through this with flying colors. So, so then he, he shifts, and over in, in, in chapter 8, he starts talking about his visit to Macedonia and how it had been hard. And, and the... Uh, the difficulty that he experienced serving the Macedonians while the Macedonians themselves, 
were receiving some pretty severe persecution. There was a lot of trial. It wasn't easy ground. But then he writes almost in amazement that one of the things the Macedonian Christians did was they insisted on giving a large contribution to this offering that Paul was collecting for the saints in Jerusalem. This is something uh, that we see, it, we see it mentioned in Romans, we see it in Corinthians, we see it in Galatians, I think. This is something that Paul was doing. It had been a project for quite some time. Everywhere he went, he was, collect, he was taking up a collection to give and deliver to the saints in Jerusalem who were being persecuted, to the poor saints in Jerusalem. Now, uh, I don't have time this morning. If you're curious, we can go into it, or you can read on your own. I might address it in the future, because, again, it'll come up uh, again in our readings. Uh, there, there isn't a clear uh, reason given in the Bible why the saints, the poor saints in Jerusalem needed more help than, say, the poor saints in Galatia or Corinth or anywhere else. Uh, but there was, uh, there, there are, you know, in history, not just the Bible, but history tells us there were some significant uh, famines uh, in, in, in Judea and, and in those regions. There probably, almost certainly, was more severe persecution of Jewish Christians right there in Judea uh, than there were in other places because they were getting it from the Jews and the Gentiles. And so it may, may have been harder for them to find work. But also this was headquarters, this was essentially the headquarters of the church, and to have the Gentile churches, the Gentile believers, contribute to the Jewish headquarters of Christianity really did something to strengthen the bonds and bring down those walls that still existed between Gentile Christianity and Jewish Christianity. This was a, I think Paul, this is kind of my theory, I think what Paul was really after was unifying those two branches of Christianity by, and using giving to do it. So he's collecting this, uh, he's been collecting this offering for quite some time, and he says, you know, I go into Macedonia with all this hardship, and here I am thinking I'm going to have to do all this for them, and they begged me to take their money. They wanted so badly to be a part of this that they insisted. And not only did they give as they were able, they gave beyond their ability. They didn't just give generously, they gave sacrificially. He's telling this to Corinth. Then he says to Corinth in chapter 8, verse 7, But as you abound, as you, Corinthians, abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. What grace is he talking about? He's talking about giving. There is no getting around what he's talking about in chapter 8 and chapter 9. This is the longest offering sermon you'll read in the Bible. And it's what it is, is one long offering uh, message. And then he refers to this, uh, he refers to a commitment that they had made a year ago. Uh, let's just read this, in, in, uh, still in, in chapter 8, beginning in verse 10. And in this I give advice. It is to your advantage not only to be doing what you began and were desiring to do a year ago, but now you must also complete the doing of it, that as there was a readiness to desire it, so also there may be a completion out of what you have. For if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has and not according to to what one does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but by, an, uh, but by an equality that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack 
and that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. As it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered had no lack. Now that first part, I probably should have stopped there, when he, when he says, uh, if, it is first, if there is first a willing mind, it is accepted according to what one has, and not according to what one does not have. That is a beautiful statement. You ought to highlight it because what he's saying is God is looking at your heart. He recognizes your desire to give, and he's not measuring your gift by the size of the gift itself, but by the heart that's behind it. And, and what's the parallel in the Gospels? It's the widow's might, right? He's looking at all the people putting money in the money box, and the woman who gave the least, Jesus said she gave the most because it represented everything she had. It was a higher percentage. It was the heart that God is looking at. But then he goes on to talk about this equality. He says, look, you're in a position now to help them. I'm not trying to deprive you of something. I'm just, I'm, I want you to supply their lack because the day is coming when they might su- supply your lack that there be an equality. Now, as you can probably guess, there are people through the ages who have looked at this passage and a couple of others and tried to find a biblical basis for communism. It's like, see, nobody should be richer than anybody else. Uh, and, and they say that communism is a, a better expression that's not what this, that is not what this verse is saying. He's not saying that. In fact, just the opposite. He, he starts off this passage by saying, I'm not saying this by way of command. I'm not saying this, saying it to the Lord. I'm saying, look, you guys made a commitment. And that commitment was a good one because it was from a heart of generosity. It was from a heart of concern for these saints. You need to complete it because God looks, he smiles on that kind of heart. He smiles on that commitment. You complete it for your sake out of your desires. And, as he's going to go on to say here, you reap what you sow. And you sow generously now, you will reap in time of need. So, and not just in time of need, let's just, we'll we'll read on here in just a second. Uh, He spends the rest of chapter 8 assuring them that the finances are being overseen by trustworthy believers. He refers to two excellent uh, two men of excellent reputation who are his traveling partners one of whom is almost certainly luke but he doesn't tell us that and then chapter nine actually contains the best new testament passage on giving but look how it starts out we'll begin in verse one chapter nine verse one of second corinthians now concerning the ministering to the saints it is superfluous of me to write to you superfluous for me to write to you for i know your willingness about which I boast of you to the Macedonians, that Achaia was ready a year ago, and your zeal has stirred up the majority. Yet I have sent the brethren, lest our boasting of you should be in vain in this respect, that, as I said, you may be ready, lest if some Macedonians come with me and find you unprepared, we, not to mention you, should be ashamed of this confident boasting. Therefore, I thought it necessary to exhort the brethren to go to you ahead of, me, uh, ahead of time and prepare your generous gift beforehand which you had previously promised, that it may be ready as a matter of generosity and not as grudging obligation. Man, this just is, it seems kind of bold, doesn't it? He's saying, uh, hey, look, you guys promised this big offering? Now, I could just come with whoever comes with me. Might be some Macedonians with me who, remember, they gave really generously. And when I get there, I could say, hey, how about that promise you made a year ago? Let's do it now. And then you guys would be thinking, oh, man. Now is not really a good time, but I guess you're putting us on the spot. We'll give it. He's saying, no, I'm telling you ahead of time. I'm giving you plenty of time to set this offering aside so that when I get there, it's already ready. You're not having to dig. You're not having to rob Peter to pay Paul, as it were. And you can give this thing cheerfully, joyfully, rather than out of grudging necessity. 
And just so you know, I've already told the Macedonians that you guys are going to give big. Don't let me down. And then this. Still in uh, chapter 9, beginning in verse 6. This is the best. This is the part you need to draw a line around this, highlight it. Uh, whatever you do to it, make sure you can still read it. But this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. <coughs> Excuse me. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. You look at all the alls in there, and it boggles my mind that anybody would say, well, when you, Paul talks about sowing and reaping and giving and receiving, he's not talking about money. He's talking about goodness. He's talking about mercy. He's talking about righteousness. He's talking about the gospel itself. Number one, talk about taking something out of context the whole context of this passage is money i'm coming to collect a gift so that i could take it to the saints in jerusalem i'm writing to you ahead of time so that you can be setting it aside so you're not embarrassed when i get there then he talks about this not only that even if you just isolate this passage god is able to make all grace abound toward you that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have an abundance for every good work somebody would would rather read that all things except money all sufficiency except in the area of finances. He is saying it's not just limited to finances, but it certainly includes our money. I want you to have an abundance of it so that every time there's a need, like currently the saints in Jerusalem, you can contribute to it generously. And God wants you to have an abundance so that you can do that as well. But it starts with sowing. You can't reap a harvest where you haven't sowed. Three laws of the harvest. Remember what they are? You reap what you sow, you reap more than you sow, and you reap after you sow. But he gives you the seed. What's it say? Is this next? Verse 10. Now may he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food supply and multiply the seed that you have, seed you have sown and increase the fruits of your righteousness while you are enriched in everything for all liberality which causes thanksgiving through us to God. For the administration of this service not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also is abounding through many thanksgivings to God, while through the proof of this ministry they glorify God for the obedience of your confession to the gospel of Christ and for your liberal sharing with them and all men and by their prayer for you who long for you because of the exceeding grace of God in you. Thanks be to God for this indescribable gift. He's saying your liberality in giving will not only reap you a harvest of the seed you have sown. That's when we talk about the laws of the harvest. That's clearly in there. You're going to reap what you sow. And if you sow sparingly, you know, ah, never mind, never mind. But when you talk about sowing versus planting, you say, well, if I take it, if I got 100 seeds in my hand and I throw them out there, and I've, I've observed that only 10 of them are really going to grow into good, strong plants. So from now on, I'm only going to sow 10 seeds. Well, what's going to happen? Then you're only going to grow one strong plant. So we give, we give generously, we sow generously. And then we can reap. The more we sow, the more we reap. And then, uh, but he's saying... This isn't just going to bring in a harvest of the seed you sowed, but it's also going to produce a harvest of thanksgiving to God for you. 
offered up by the saints that you bless. He's saying this offering is going to have some very real spiritual uh, consequences. The people that are being helped and inspired by your giving are going to fervently thank God for you. They're going to look at you and say, that is an obedient, generous church. And I want to be like them, and God bless them so they continue to be a blessing to us and continue to be a blessing for others. They're going to be thanking God. And there's an extension here because the gospel is being preached. People are going to be, are actually going to be saved as a result of the offering that's taken place. It's an extension of what Jesus said. They will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. Now, uh, let me ask you something. Having read what Paul just wrote, hey, uh, Macedonians, they're in a lot harder spot than you are, and man, you should see how they gave. Oh, and then I told them while I was there, oh, yeah, you guys are great. This, I'm, I'm blown away by your generosity. Let me tell you about these guys in Corinth. They've already committed to giving this huge offering to Jerusalem, and when I go back there, I'm going to collect it. And then he writes Corinth and says, hey, I told the Macedonians what great givers you are. Don't let me down. Is this manipulative? Kind of seems that way, doesn't it? He's doing this before he comes. He clearly expects it to have an effect on them. But technically it's not manipulation. It's exhortation. Because what he's urging them to do is based on truth. He is giving them a scriptural truth from God and he expects them to act on it. He's giving them the opportunity to respond to it. This is what faith is. We can hear these great promises, but if we don't act on them, if we don't speak according to them, if we don't stand on them, they do us no good. They're, they're not automatic. They're guaranteed, but they're not automatic. What he has made clear in the verses that lead up to the, these whole two chapters that are dedicated to taking, taking up an offering is that all he really wants for them is to offer themselves wholeheartedly to God. You remember, right before he gets into this talking about the offering, he says, you're experiencing this smallness. You feel restrained. I'm not the one restraining you. You're restraining yourself. What are you restraining yourself with? Divided affections. Give yourself wholeheartedly to God. Don't join yourself to idols. Don't join yourself. Don't bind yourself with the unbeliever, but give yourself completely to God. Sell out. Well heard me say this next part before. Our lives are measured in time. You ever notice when you're reading the news, whether it's news out of Hollywood, the sports world, Washington, D.C., whoever it is they're talking about, right in parentheses next to this person, they'll be their age. You, you notice this? So-and-so, 52 of so-and-so. Why does it matter how old they are? Because it helps us to identify them. It, we, we get an idea. Maybe it's a crime report, and we say, well, okay, this person's old enough to know better. Uh, we're reading about a sports figure. We're thinking, well, this guy probably ought to be thinking about getting out of the game by now. Or maybe we're thinking, wow, it's astonishing that somebody that old is still able to produce, or somebody that young has had such a, a remarkable impact on the game, whatever. Our lives are measured in time. When we work, we are spending time in order to earn money. Doesn't mean we're worshiping money. This is just the way the world works. As Ravi Zacharias has said, money is congealed time. And so you take that a step further, since our lives are measured in time, money is congealed life. It represents your time, your toil, your sweat. 
What am I saying? I'm saying when you give your money, you are giving your life. I know there's a difference. (laughs) You're not buying your salvation. You give your life to Christ in in a separate manner. But as we continue to obey him, you know, Christianity is one long obedience in the same direction. Who said that? Who described Christianity that way? I don't remember. But it's, it's a constant process of yielding to him on a daily basis, sometimes a minute-by-minute basis. And when I yield my life, and when I yield my money to him, I'm yielding my life to him. Not only that, I'll say this. If you are withholding your money, you are withholding yourself from God. I know that's painful for some people to hear. Hopefully nobody in here is hurt by that statement. But there is absolutely no getting around that. You cannot say that you have given yourself wholly to God if you are not giving him your money. Because your money represents too much of your life. Look at verse 7 of chapter 8 again. Because we can say, look, it ain't about money. Look at everything else I do. I study the scripture. I lead my family well. I lead Sunday school. I share the gospel. I do all these things. But what does he say? Chapter 8, verse 7. But as you abound in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all diligence, and in your love for us, see that you abound in this grace also. Don't leave this out. And then right after that is when he says, I speak not by commandment. This is risky for somebody taking up an offering. It would, have been, it would have sealed the deal a little more if Paul said, Look, I want this offering for the saints in Jerusalem. I want a blessing for you. You did make a promise. And on top of that, if you don't tithe, you're robbing God. If you don't give, you're robbing God. Uh, Thus saith the Lord, give this offering. He doesn't because he wants to appeal to their heart. But he's willing to trust God to speak to these people. Is the tithe scriptural for the New Testament believer? This is the single most frequently asked question by believers when they are talking about money. Do I have to tithe? And I have to tell you in all honesty, no. But you've heard me talk about this before. Jesus doesn't lower the bar, he raises it. Bible said, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. I'm telling you, if you so much as think about killing him, if you hate a guy enough to even let the word kill cross your mind, you're guilty of murder. You know the law says don't commit adultery? I'm telling you, if you lust after a woman, you've already committed, you're guilty of breaking that command. Now you've heard the law say, uh, bring the tithe into the storehouse that there may be meat in my house and test me now on this and see if I won't open up the, the windows of heaven and pour out blessing there's not room enough to contain. I tell you, it all belongs to me. I'm telling you, if you have a struggle giving 10%, you need to check your heart and see if you really are mine. Because that's not how Jesus lived, is it? Did Jesus give 10% of himself? He wants us to live mu- think much, much bigger than that. And trust him with much more than 10%. And when we talk about legalism, we usually talk about, come on, don't tell me uh, a Christian can't have a beer every now and then. Don't tell me it's wrong to wear blue jeans to church. Don't tell me this is wrong, that is wrong, this is wrong, that is wrong. Come on, that's legalism. But the flip side of that is this. Do I have to tithe? That's legalism. We're free 
We're not bound to the tithe. We're free to give 20%, 50%, all of it. I love being inspired by these people who've done so well that they live off the 10%. They do the reverse tithe. Not out of legalism, but because that's where their heart is. Praise and worship team, come up here. I'm going to wrap this up here in a second. Remember how I asked you when Paul said all these things, if Paul was being manipulative? And if you want to get technical, I guess there was something manipulative about it, but again, I prefer to classify it as an exhortation. Was it manipulative of me to wait until the end of this service to take the offering? I've thought about that a number of times over the years when I've preached on giving from time to time. It's like, oh, we take up an offering. Then I preach on giving, and people might be thinking, wow, that's, I can't wait till next week so I can apply that. And then by next week, eh, kind of forgot. The fervency is not there. So maybe this is manipulative. That's not the way I look at it, though. The way I look at it is this. I've just shared some super important foundational truths about giving from the Bible, and I want to give you the opportunity to act on them now while it's fresh in your mind. And I want you to remember this. What are we giving when we give our money? We're giving our life. This is what we're going to pray about before we give our offering. But I want you to see this. Not as an obedience to a command or a law, but as an opportunity to give yourself at this moment this morning. In addition, I want you to hear me now. If you've never actually given your heart to Jesus Christ, he wants that more than he wants your money, believe me. The money is just, man, it's obedience, it's love, and it's symbolic. Again, it represents our lives. But what he wants is your life. What he gave you is his life. Does God bring riches and and money and financial blessings into our lives? Yeah, he does, because you reap what you sow. Is that what Jesus came for? He came to give you his life, period. It just happens to include the abundance of healing and provision and everything else. Same thing. Is he interested in your money? Yeah, but he's interested in your heart. If you've never given your heart to Jesus Christ, you need to know. He already gave his life for you. That's what the cross was about. That body that he came to inhabit as a baby grew up to be a man and endured real suffering, real pain, and real death on the cross because somebody had to die. Our sin required that. God loved us so much that instead of laying that sentence on us, he laid it on his son. He took our sin and pronounced Jesus guilty and then put the punishment for that sin on Jesus so that when Jesus rose from the dead he could take that resurrection life that righteousness and and clothe us with that we are in Christ and inheritors of all spiritual blessings if you've never made that decision before I want you to make it today we're going to start singing here in a minute after I pray after I pray we start singing, ushers will be receiving the offering. Take it seriously when you drop that check or that cash into that plate. Reflect on what it is you're giving. Congealed life. And if you need to make a decision for Jesus Christ this morning, that's also when I want you to come up here and let me pray with you for salvation. If, after you lay that offering in the plate, you want to come and, and just bow yourself before God and say, God, 
I have not yielded myself to you, whether it's money or something else. I, God, I'm holding something back. I've been complaining. I've been whining about how weak um, Christianity is or church is or whatever. And I realize now you're not holding me back. Life's not holding me back. I'm holding me back because I haven't yielded myself to you. You want to spend some time at the altar? You want to spend some time there during, during this song? Even just a few minutes acknowledging that and recommit yourself to giving yourself wholeheartedly to God. Let's pray. And lift your offering up as we pray this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you for your presence in this place. And thank you for giving seed to the sower. As we give this offering this morning, Lord God, let it be received as our life, our time. We give it with a pure heart. We give it joyfully, cheerfully, hilariously. We are eager to sow into the work of your kingdom. You have given everything to us. Please, Lord, don't let us be found guilty of holding anything back from you. We believe that as we tithe and give our offerings that we are blessed, that it shall be returned to us in abundance, Father. We'll reap a harvest of seed so that there is a superabundance, Lord, for every good thing that comes along. We want to be constantly sowing as we bring in this harvest. Don't let us found to be building bigger and bigger barns, but let us be sowing further and further abroad and bringing in a greater and greater harvest, not just of money, Lord, but of souls, of thankful hearts who are thanking God for us as we sow into these lives around the world. I thank you also, Lord, now that... that and pray that if there's anybody in the sound of my voice who does not know you as Father, who has not come into the saving relationship with you, God, through your Son, Jesus Christ, that you would convict them of their need this morning. Grant them the insight, the recognition, the conviction, the boldness, the humility, everything they need to come and receive that free gift of eternal life today. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you as you come. God bless you as you give. Let's go ahead and sing. Thanks for listening. We hope that this message encouraged and equipped you in your walk with Christ. Make sure to follow us on Facebook or Instagram to stay updated with what's going on at Living Word Family Church. Have a great day.